This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to a special edition of Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on October 5th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. In this episode, we'll replay an interview with Harvard Medical School biologist Jack Shostak, very early this morning, Shostak was informed he had shared the 2009 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. We'll also play a telephone interview conducted by Scientific American editor George Musser with Jonathan Mostow, director of the new Bruce Willis sci-fi thriller, Surrogates. To let you know about Jack Shostak, here's today's daily podcast about the Nobel Prize. The 2009 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine goes to Harvard's Jack Shostak, Johns Hopkins' Carol Greider, and Elizabeth Blackburn at UC San Francisco for their work on how chromosomes are protected by telomeres and the enzyme telomerase. The Nobel laureate's research helped explain how an organism's DNA is successfully copied when cells divide. Telomeres are genetic sequences that act like little protective caps at the end of chromosomes. Think of the sealed tips of your shoelaces. Telomerase is the enzyme that builds telomeres. Blackburn and Shostak determined that it was a specific DNA sequence in the telomeres that kept chromosomes from fraying whenever they were copied when a cell splits in two. Blackburn and Greider discovered telomerase. The findings have implications for the understanding of aging and cancer, because if the enzyme keeps the telomeres robust, the chromosomes stay protected and the cell's aging is slowed. And in cancer cells, which unfortunately do not seem to age, telomere length is maintained virtually indefinitely. Jostak, Greider, and Blackburn thus revealed one of life's basic mechanisms and paved the way for new medical strategies. In May 2008, I attended an evolution conference at Rockefeller University here in New York where I met Jack Shostak. His more recent work is on the origins of life. What exactly does somebody who's studying origins of life do that a, a regular old evolutionary biologist doesn't do when they're doing their research? Well, what we're really trying to understand is how uh, molecules can get together and start to act in a Darwinian fashion. So we're talking about the origin of cellular systems that can evolve, which is completely different from the way that chemicals in interact with each other. How is it different? Well, chemical reactions are, are you know, controlled by the thermodynamics of the chemistry, by kinetic considerations. But Darwinian evolution is completely different because in that case we're talking about populations with variation and the selection of variants that are more fit. And as that is repeated and repeated, then the, the better variants come to dominate the population. You just don't have that kind of cyclic feedback system in a, in a simple chemical reaction. So where are we in this kind of research? I mean, obviously, no one has created... A, a living cell from from buying reagent grade chemicals. So where where does the research stand right now? Well, that's basically what we're trying to do, but it's obviously going to be a long process. The way we're thinking about it, the 
critical components that we have to think about are some kind of genetic material. So it could be RNA or DNA like we have in modern biology, or it could be some related kind of material. And we're also thinking about some kind of cell envelope, a cell membrane. Um, not that that's necessarily the very first way Darwinian systems began, but at, at some point they had to transition into a, a system more related to modern biology where cells are all bounded by membranes. So we're thinking about how to assemble these two components and get them to interact with each other. I think that's an important point. Should you succeed, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way it happened. It's just a sort of a proof of concept, right? Absolutely. I mean, what we're interested in is figuring out plausible pathways for the origin of life. It would be great to have even one complete plausible pathway, but what we find often is when we figure out how one little step might might have worked, it gives us ideas, and then we end up with ultimately two or three or more different ways in which a particular step could could be could have could have happened. So that that makes us think that uh, the, the overall process might be more robust. So uh, you know, ultimately, it would be nice, I think, if if it turned out there were multiple. Um, plausible pathways, then, of course, we'd, we might never know what really happened on the early Earth. And it should also be noted that this is a pretty young field, so it's uh, some some people who, who don't want you to succeed uh, point out that no scientist has, has been able to pull this off yet, but it's not really surprising. It's a complicated thing, and people haven't been working on it all that long. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, uh, in in some ways, the field can be dated to the you know early experiments of Stanley Miller about 50 years ago. Um, so it's a long process going from very small, simple molecules up to a cellular structure. Um, there are parts of the pathway that I think are getting to be well understood, but there are many gaps in our understanding. But just because there are parts we don't understand doesn't mean that we'll never understand them. You uh, you gave a talk yesterday, and you talked about some of the simple and yet unexpected phenomena that, that you see as you're doing this research. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about approaching this problem by actually trying to build a system is that you come across all kinds of unexpected, interesting phenomena. And, and I think it's really nice. It's sort of broadening our perspective, making us think about different simple physical processes, different things that membranes can do, um, different ways you know the environment can impact assembly processes. There's a lot of surprising stuff out there once you really start to investigate the system in detail. Can you talk about any of the specifics there? Uh, well, I can mention uh, some of the things that have been published. For example, a few years ago, we were starting to look at the way that membranes self-assemble. Uh, and these are not modern kinds of membranes. These are membranes made with fatty acids. And it turns out that the assembly of membranes is actually catalyzed by preformed membranes. It's a surface phenomenon, and it's generalized, and many different surfaces will catalyze membrane assembly. And one of the interesting ones is that clay minerals will help membranes to assemble. So uh, it turns out there's a very common uh, clay mineral that 
previously been looked at by prebiotic chemists and shown to help RNA molecules to assemble. So ultimately, what we had was a simple common mineral that can help uh, a genetic material to assemble, can help membranes to assemble, and it turned out can help bring them together. So that was a very satisfying outcome. Uh, But, you know, it's turned out there are many other uh, unanticipated simple physical processes that have been found in the course of these kinds of experiments as well. One one of the issues that we have to think about is how small molecules can get across membranes without all the complicated modern biological machinery that controls the transport of molecules across membranes. So, so we were starting to, to look at how simple molecules like sugars get across, uh, these fatty acid membranes, uh, you know, spontaneously without any help from fancy proteins. And it turned out completely unexpectedly that ribose, which is one of the building blocks of RNA, gets across a wide range of membranes much more quickly than a set of very closely related sugars. So it makes you think that, well, maybe that could have been one contributing factor to why we actually use genetic materials that incorporate ribose, because early cells that relied on an external source of ribose would have had easier access to that material. compared to competing cells that were looking for a different sugar that had a harder time getting across the membrane. Now, we still don't really understand why ribose gets across so much faster. We have some ideas, but uh, that's that's just a topic that's going to take a lot more more study. But we never would have found this this, uh, surprising result, uh, you know, if we were systematically looking at these kinds of transport processes. So if you want to make uh, new RNA, if you're duplicating RNA within that membrane, the fact that you can bring ribose into the the protocell easily is a real advantage there. Yeah, that would become an advantage at the point where um, the early steps of metabolism started to evolve. Absolutely. So where do you think uh, you're going to be in, uh, or the whole field is going to be in, you know, this is the, the typical hackneyed journalist question, but where do you see yourself in 10 years? Well, the progress over the last uh, 10 or 20 years has been, on the one hand, very encouraging, right? We've learned a tremendous amount. On the other hand, we've also learned that there are things we we don't understand that we hadn't even thought about before. So, you know, I, I can't really say that, uh, you know, we'll have built a cell in three years or 10 years or 20 years. I mean, we don't even know all the problems yet. Um, but I think th- the interest, the relevant part is that there are, there are a lot of really interesting scientific questions that are easy to investigate. There's a lot of interesting stuff that we're going to find out, so I think it's just going to continue to be an exciting time. What's one of the things that you didn't realize you'd need to know that you now know that you need to know? (laughs) Well, it's looking like one of the aspects that may take us some time to figure out is how to get a self-replicating genetic system off the ground. And... When we, when I started off in this field about 20 years ago, I was pretty confident that it would be something we could do relatively easily with an RNA-catalyzed replication system. And that's turned out to be substantially more difficult than I thought. 
where RNA pretty much catalyzes its own reproduction. Right, right. So there's been tremendous progress in that. We have sort of proof of principle ribozymes that are RNA-dependent RNA polymerases, which is great. But I think we really have to step back and think about the problem in a different way in order to develop a simple, effective system that can actually do self-replication and not just be a proof of principle. So that's made us uh, look again at the chemistry of replication and start to explore a wider range of nucleic acids. Jack Shostak had an article in the September issue of Scientific American called The Origin of Life on Earth. It's available at our website. His co-Nobel laureates, Elizabeth Blackburn and Carol Greider, co-authored a February 1996 Scientific American article called Telomeres, Telomerase, and Cancer. And we have reposted that on our website. You can access both articles free for a limited time. Robotic human surrogates combine the durability of a machine with the grace and beauty of the human body. With most people living their lives through their surrogate cells, our world has become a safer place. Take a seat in your STEM chair. And just with the power of your mind... You can control your surrogate and send it out into the real world. You see what they see. Feel what they feel. And become anyone you want to be from the comfort and safety of your own home. You can finally live the life you've always dreamt of without any risk or danger to yourself. We are confronted with an unprecedented situation. Two people have died while connected to their surrogates. I think we may actually have a homicide here. The public cannot be allowed to get the idea that using a surrogate can be fatal. Especially if it's true. That's from the trailer for the new Bruce Willis sci-fi thriller, Surrogates. Scientific American editor George Musser recently spoke to Surrogates director Jonathan Mostow. I just wanted to, to ask your thoughts on some of the sociological and kind of social technical, technological themes of the film, and as you see them, what are the things you're really trying to bring out with this project? Well, if, if you know, there's an old saying, if you want to send uh, a message, use Western Telegram. Uh, I think it's always dangerous if you set out to uh, make a movie for the purpose of expressing a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what you have a lot better luck with is being drawn to a story that or an idea that resonates with you on some level that maybe at first you can't even articulate for yourself. And then as you immerse yourself more in it, you realize the reason it spoke to you on some level, the reason it compelled you, is that it's speaking the truth to you about something in your own life or in society's current uh, uh, situation mm-hmm. that um, feels truthful and, and feels like you're able to explore an idea or express an idea that another might not be so well suited for. So um, in the case of this movie, what this movie winds up doing is actually asking a question. And the question it asks is, what price do we pay for having all this wonderful technology Mm. that we are, you know, uh, using? And, you know, I love my computer. I love using email and, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and all these innovations. I think they're fantastic. And yet, 
you can easily find yourself sucked into this vortex where you're spending hours a day staring at a computer screen. Mm-hmm. And every every moment that you spend doing that is a moment you're not with your family, with your friends, uh, going out for a walk, doing something real in the real world. And so you need the situation where you know we're we're all more connected to each other than we've ever been in the history of our species, and yet you can also make the argument that we're sort of more disconnected from each other than ever before, because we interact with each other only virtually, not not in person. It's ironic, it seems to be a condition of the modern era where connectivity goes in hand in hand with disconnectivity, and we, we've had that, I mean, we don't live in villages anymore, we're in cities, we have more people around us than ever before, and yet we feel more distant from them. Yeah, I mean, it, I believe that a thousand years from now, historians will look back on the time we're living in right now, and, and specifically like this this decade, or maybe even these these couple of years, as a turning point in the history of mankind, not the way we look back on primitive man when they discovered fire, and, and how that wound up changing society. You know, at the, at the time that they discovered fire, I'm sure they thought, oh, that's great. we don't have to eat, you know, <laughs> raw, you know, raw animals anymore, and we can, we can eat our caves. And yet, the discovery of fire led to many different things, literally in how we live and how we interact with each other. You know, it meant that it meant that people could stay up later. You know, and and live in places they couldn't otherwise live in, and, and, you know, I mean, I'm scratching the surface of what the implications of it are, but in, in the same way, what is it doing to us that we are spending all this time and all this energy um, uh, interacting with each other through all these electronic means? Um, and I don't know the answer, and the movie doesn't try to provide the answer. The movie only simply is ultimately asking those questions. Again, in the context of a, of a Hollywood so it was really seeing those kinds of themes in your own life, the, the, the elements of the story in your own life that drew you to this particular one? I, I read, I mean, for me, this project began with reading the graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was sent to me with the question of do I want to develop this into a movie? And, and you know, I get a lot of stuff sent to me for the purpose of turning it into a movie. And almost all of it I say no to because there's, there's not fundamentally an interesting idea at the core of it. You know, I just, when you do a movie, you have to be prepared to spend two years of your life doing mm-hmm. nothing but thinking about that that movie, that idea. So if there's not something compelling there, that's a pretty uh, empty exercise to go through. So in the case of this movie, I, I, I read the graphic novel and I thought, wow, this is such a simple idea, really. Just the idea that everybody stays at home and lives their life vicariously through these remote-operated robots, and yet it, it spoke to exactly how I think I'm living my life to a great extent and mm-hmm. how our society is going. And so so it, it, it leads to you thinking about the societal impacts of how technology affects us, but also the individual psychological way that it's affecting us. How about some of the specific kind of technological themes? How much did you really want to push people's visions of robotics or what would happen to, to computers in the future as opposed to the, some of the social questions. Well, one of the decisions I made early on was to not set the movie in the future. That's actually a big difference from the graphic novel. The graphic novel is set, I think, in the year 2054. And I, I started out doing that, and then I realized, you know what? 
spend all our energy designing flying cars and futuristic telephones and, and all these things, and it doesn't have anything to do with our story. The fact of the matter is this technology that the movie, although it doesn't exist yet, from, from the standpoint of what it represents, it absolutely exists. The idea that, that you could pretty much function by never having to leave your house, that, that's, uh, that's here and now already. So I decided that we would set this world, this movie, in, in a world that looks like today, with the only difference being that, you know, it's populated with these surrogate robots. Uh, and uh, but it was also, I was also helped in that choice by looking at a lot of other movies that have been done in the future, and at some level they kind of all fall, fall short because something about them ultimately feels fake, and, and you're distracted mm. by by looking at a car that's supposed to be a futuristic car and going, well, is that how cars really would be? So if there's things like in our movie, we see somebody going down the street, and you see what appears to be a telephone booth that they're passing, and then you realize, well, that's not, that's not actually a telephone booth. That's a, some sort of charging apparatus where people, if they need to charge their surrogates, can basically just kind of dock themselves into these, into these charging bays and, uh, you know, for half an hour to refresh their batteries before they have to continue you know, on with their day. Have you spent uh, time yourself on things like Second Life and some of these immersive realities? You know, I don't have the time. I know I know. I just spent three hours a day doing that. So I um, kind of, uh, you know, check myself. Does that come out in the film as well? There are people who have kind of self-corrected and they're realizing, oh, I'm spending too much time on the, on, in, my, in my virtual world. I should do something else. No, but purposely not. Um, that, that, that there's two kinds of people in this movie. There's the people that basically, you know, use this technology, which means that you're basically using it all the time. Or mm-hmm. people that have just outright rejected it and don't want to live in a world where people are, are living like this. And uh, the movie makes a very clear distinction between those two groups of people. You know, it's, it's interesting because the graphic novelist uh, based his graphic novel, the inspiration for it, I should say, was he read some academic writings of a guy that had done studies on people that were just addicted to the internet, just could not unplug from their computer. And the interesting thing is that, that research was done in the mid-1990s, which to us now mm-hmm. seems like a dinosaur age of computers, you know. Back then, when most of us had dial-up modems, there was no mm-hmm. Facebook, there was no Twitter, these things were all very primitive, and yet already there were people at that point that, that just couldn't get themselves to get up out of their chair and and leave their computer. Check out George Musser's September 24th blog item about the movie Surrogates at scientificamerican.com slash blog. And go to the website for the latest science news, including our breaking coverage of the Nobel Prizes all this week. You can also follow us on Twitter. The handle is at Siam, that's S-C-I-A-M. And my own tweets are available at Steve Mursky. This has been Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American. Thanks for clicking on us.